All right, so here's a question for you. If you could see God, would you want to? Like, would, if God would just show up and be like, yeah, that's something I, I would want to know. I would want to see him. I think, you know, for most of us, the answer is probably yes. Um, throughout human history, I think the answer for most people has probably been yes, whether you are a person of faith or you consider yourself to be even skeptical um, or atheist, agnostic, wherever you land on that spectrum. I think all of us would say, well, yeah, like if there is a God, I want to see him. I want him to show up. I want to know what he's like because that would just clear up a lot of confusion, wouldn't it? In fact, isn't that sometimes, aren't those sometimes the things that we say? Like if you're a person who's skeptical or, or you're doubting, you're questioning things, maybe you said or thought, thought something along those lines of like, man, like if God is real, why doesn't he just show up? Why doesn't he prove it? Why doesn't he just reveal himself so that I could believe in him? Then I would. Uh, or if you're kind of like a personal faith, but maybe you're a little marginal, you know, it's like, I mean, I believe, but I don't really know what to do with it because um, I don't really know what God is after. If he would just show up and show me what he's like, then I would follow him because I would know what to do. If God would reveal himself, if he would show up on the planet for us to see, well, that would change everything. But here's the thing. Maybe, maybe he has shown up and maybe it did change everything. We're in part three of a series today on the Gospel of John. We're wrapping up John's prologue. Um, in the prologue, the first 18 verses of his Gospel, where he, uh, he's kind of unpacking some core themes and ideas that are going to come up throughout his Gospel. And as we wrap this up today, we're going to look at some words that John wrote uh, that I would argue are some of the most important words ever, uh, ever written. Um, that they changed everything from how we see the world to how we see God. So we're just going to dive right in and unpack this as we go. Uh, so John chapter 1, starting in verse 14, if you want to follow along in a Bible or here on the screen, here's what John says. He says, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. Four words that changed the course of history. Um, we're going to camp out here for a little bit because this is just so massive. The idea of the word became flesh is the idea of what in Christianity it's called the incarnation. Uh, literally, it means to come into meat. The word carne means meat, you know, carne asada, that's grilled meat. Chili con carne, chili with meat. Incarnation is, is God coming into meat. It's God become human. And so there's, in the backbone of what John is going to do in his gospel, and even what he said so far in the prologue, it centers around this idea of how did God reveal himself? How did he uh, save? How do we become children of God? How is he operating in the world? John, what did he do to make these things a reality? Um, and, and John says, well, it's, it's from him. It, it happened by him becoming flesh. That the word, you know, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, this, this idea of the, the, the word is kind of put in substitute for God in John's prologue. It's the, the wisdom and the power of God in the world. It's God's purposes in the world. It's the thing that's holding the universe together, uh, that that word, that the creator God, he's big and he's massive. And that's kind of what we've seen so far. But now John's going to be like, yeah, but he's also small and he's also personal. And he works in the world in a personal way. The word, the word became flesh. The God became human. It's really kind of interesting and, and almost unsettling, at least in, in my mind, the word that John uses for flesh. It's this Greek uh, word, sarx. Um, and it's kind of a crude word. I mean, even our English translation sounds a little bit crude, right? Like flesh. It just sounds... It almost sounds a little dehumanizing. It sounds very raw. It sounds very primitive. Like, not the word became a person or the word became human or the word became a body. It's just that the word became 
flesh, just meat. And, and literally, that is what the, like the, um, that's the emphasis on that kind of word. It, it means um, like the, the physical nature of being human, skin, blood, muscle, bone. Like John is emphasizing this idea, like the nitty-gritty physicalness of Jesus. Uh, one scholar said this, and I thought it summed it up so well. He said, the word flesh is a startling one that John deliberately bypasses the words for man or a body and uses the word flesh, and it stands for the whole person. It refers to human existence, get this, it refers to human existence in its frailty and vulnerability. It it, it, it refers to human existence in its frailty and vulnerability, that Jesus identified with us to that degree. He made our creaturely weakness his very own form of being. That John wants to communicate this radical idea that this big, huge, massive God that he's been talking about in his prologue, the prologue, the word, the creator, the one who's always been there, that, that that God actually becomes one of us frail, vulnerable, killable, hurtable people. It's, it's insane. It was an idea that would have been so shocking to his culture that would have broke so many just categories down, one of which, to, as he writes to the, the Jewish people in his audience, the idea that God would become a man was just like, like, no, like that doesn't happen. Like God can't be a man. In fact, it's one of the things that got Jesus into trouble later in John's gospel. They're, they're trying to, to uh, accuse him and stone him. And he's like, you know, what, what, for what, what thing are you, you know, what miracle are you getting mad at me for? And they're like, well, no, it's not about the miracles. It's because you a mere man are claiming to be God. And so they're all fired up about that. So to the Jewish audience, this is like, wait, no, 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 no. God, he's, he's too big to be, to be a man. And so it breaks their categories. But another group of people that I want to talk about for a minute, that this is, is written actually in, in a direct response to this group and to some of this thinking. A lot of what John says in his gospel is meant to combat a thinking that was called Gnosticism. And that's going to come up as we spend time in John's gospel. But Gnosticism, or the the Gnostics, were a a sect of people that believed in a secret knowledge that saved you. Uh, That's where where the word comes from, the Greek word gnosis. It means to know. Um, And so the Gnostics were people that claimed to know, to have a secret knowledge that nobody else possessed but only they knew. And one of the things like where Gnosticism intersected with Christianity, because it was kind of this weird spinoff uh, that wasn't really Christian, um, they, they denied the full uh, humanity of Jesus. They had no problems with Jesus being God, but, but Jesus being human, that didn't fit into their paradigm because the Gnostics believed that the physical world was bad. Um, and, but then the spiritual world was good. So like spirit, soul, that's good. Physical like existence that we find ourselves, that world is bad. That world is corrupted. So the idea that God, who is spirit, would become human, like full-on physical human, that was a big problem for them. And so they, they kind of created this system where they claimed that there was a heavenly Jesus, and this heavenly Jesus just kind of um, was controlling an earthly body. Uh, and so in that sense that Jesus only appeared as human, but he wasn't actually human. And then actually at the, cru- the point of the crucifixion, the heavenly Jesus returned to heaven, um, and it was just the man that died on the cross. This is so far outside of the, the realm of Orthodox Christian belief. And John specifically, uh, in what he says here, is, is 
is just like slamming that. He's like, no, 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 listen, hold up. And this is John writing very early on. This is late first century. And he's like, I was there. I saw Jesus. I was an eyewitness. I experienced that he was my friend. Let me tell you what happened and who this Jesus is. So John is like, hold up. Let me tell you that the word, and he says the word became flesh. Right, because the Gnostics said Jesus only appeared as human. John says, no, he became flesh. And even again, just the word that he uses, sarks, instead of the word for body or the word for human, the word flesh, just emphasizing the physical nature of Jesus. He says, this was God in the flesh, fully God, but at the same time, fully human, fully physical. And that idea um, that, that came up in Gnosticism, that idea of, of dualism, wasn't just a Gnostic thing. It was very popular in Greek culture and uh, the first century in and around the area where uh, the events of Jesus' life take place. It's very uh, heavily influenced um, by the Greeks and Greek thinking. And so there was this Greek way of thinking of dualism that, that held that the spirit or the soul in that kind of realm, um, that was good and the physical world was bad and the two were, were separate. Uh, and so that idea early on actually crept into the church. As the message of Christianity spread, um, and it, it spread to these areas that were you know, Greco-Roman kind of areas, this idea of dualism got into the church. And I just want to talk about that for a minute because, believe it or not, this is a way of thinking that still gets into the church, and it messes things up because we substitute who Jesus really is and the real message of Jesus for a fake, and life is only found in the real version. And sometimes we end up living a Christian life and we wonder, it doesn't seem like it's working, it doesn't seem like there's life, and oftentimes I wonder, is it because we've settled for a counterfeit version? And this dualistic way of thinking is one of the, the biggest counterfeits. Uh, and so look, listen, like the, the incarnation, Jesus becoming human, it's at the heart of Christianity. Like, and so that has implications for you and for me and for our faith. One of the implications of that is that, that your, your body is good. Like your physical existence in the world, it is a good thing. It is a beautiful thing. And, and not only is, is physical existence, not only is your body, is it good? Is there something sacred about our physicalness? There's not just something sacred about the spiritual soul part of us. There's something sacred about the physical part of us as well. Not only is it good, but that also means what we do with our bodies matters. What we do with our bodies matters. And there's kind of two ways I want to talk about this. The first way is the obvious way. Literally what we do with our bodies matters. Like how we take care of our physical bodies is important. Uh, and not just in a physical health kind of way, but again, there's something sacred about the, uh, the physical nature to us. God has made us this way. And so what we do with our bodies, how we take care of ourselves, the things like the substances that we do or don't put into our bodies, what we do uh, with our sex and sexuality, all of that matters. It's not something that we just get to brush off and go, that doesn't really make that big of a difference. And see, that's the danger. That's what I see us doing a lot of times within the church. There's kind of this way of thinking that says like, you know, what I do with my body doesn't matter, you know, as long as me and Jesus are good because spiritually I'm connected uh, to Jesus. And so it boils down to this, like I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, wherever I want, with whoever I want. And then I go to church on Sunday and I get a little bit of Jesus and mm, mm, 
something that feels good, or I have a little worship jam session in the car. And so there's, there's this dualistic thinking. There's a way of thinking that I can exist and be in the world however I want to be, and then do church on Sunday, worship music, where I can seem very spiritual, but it's not lived out in my life. And so the first way that we do this, like I said, it's very much what we actually do with our bodies. The second way, kind of playing off of that, is how we exist as physical people in the physical world. How do we engage with our physical environment? You know, Jesus said the most important thing is that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. So we love God, we love our neighbor. But as it relates to this, the physical nature of who we are and the physical world we live in, that means we love God and we love our neighbor physically. Like we, 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 we put action to that. It's tangible. I love God and I love my neighbor with my body, with my, with my hands, with, with my heart, with my, the way that I think, with how I see things, what I hear. Like there's a physicalness to it. What do I do with my time, my talent, my treasure? Like how am I engaging in the physical world? What I do with my body matters because the Christian faith is not just about head knowledge. It's not just about belief. It's not just about a spiritual counter, encounter or a spiritual experience. It is a holistic thing that I engage with mind, body, spirit. How I live matters. At the center of the Christian faith is the person of Jesus. And how does Jesus enter into the world he enters into the world physically. Not only does he enter into the world physically, but the, 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 the pinnacle moment, right? His death on the cross for sin and his resurrection defeating the grave. His resurrection is a physical resurrection. He shows up and he has breakfast on the beach with some of his disciples in a physical body. They're able to touch his physical body. The New Testament says that that picture of Jesus, his resurrection, that's the first fruits of what awaits all of us. And so the hope of the Christian and the Christian faith is not a disembodied existence in heaven someday where we just float around as like glowing orbs or whatever picture you have in your mind. That's not the hope of the Christian. That's not what the Christian faith teaches. The hope of the Christian is physical resurrection, that there will be a new creation and we will have new bodies, and it will be a physical existence. This is so core to a proper understanding of faith. And so all of that idea, that is all packed into what John is saying here, that the word became flesh, that the, the centerpiece of the Christian faith is that God became human. There's a physical, there's a gritty physicalness to our faith. The word became flesh, and he's not done, and he dwelt among us. That this word, that God becomes human and he, he dwells with us. It's this idea of, of taking up residence, of, of pitching his tent, of tabernacling is literally what it means. Uh, the, the, the tabernacle was this tent structure. As Israel in the Old Testament wandered around in the wilderness, the tabernacle went with them and that's where the presence of God was. And so that's the picture that John is, is painting. It's the presence of God with us. Jesus showed up and was present with us. I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in the message translation. He says that the word became flesh and bone and moved into the neighborhood. That Jesus moved into the neighborhood. He came to rub shoulders to do life with. He got up close and personal. He waded into our mess for 30 years. God was human. For 30 years, he ate, he laughed, he cried, he had friends, he had family. He became one of us and moved into the neighborhood. He is able to, to resonate on every level with the human experience. He dwelt 
with us. He's near to us. It was true then. It is true now. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he says, we've, we've observed or we've seen his glory. The glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John says, hey, through the person of Jesus, we've now seen the glory of God, which was a astounding thing to say, again, in, in, in the context of John's Jewish audience, um, they, they couldn't see God's glory. Like throughout the Old Testament, there's always this idea that's like, no, if you see the glory of God, you will die because he's too awesome. He's too incredible. Like it's just like our little puny, little human finite minds and existence, like we can't handle seeing God's glory. We will like, we'll just die. But something has happened in the person of Jesus now that, that we can see his glory and live. That we now have this, this access, this unfiltered access to God. We've seen the glory revealed through the Son who is full of grace and truth. This, that's, that's beautiful, man. That Jesus is full of both grace and truth, full of them. Literally, the word means full or overflowing, filled to the brim. You can't get any more in. That Jesus isn't, he's not the happy middle, okay? He, he's not like a, a nice blend. He's not 50% uh, grace and 50% truth. He is 100% overflowing with grace, and he's 100% overflowing with truth. Like he, he, and we, and we, need, we need both. We need grace. Man, do we need grace. Man, do I need grace because I, I try to screw up my life on a daily basis, and you probably do too because we're human, that's what we do. Like we fall short. We fail. We fall short of being the humans that God wants us to be. We fall short in the areas of life. We, 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 we know that we're not who, we, who we're supposed to be, but Jesus comes full of grace, and we need that. He comes full of truth, and we need that too. Because what else I need more than just grace, more than just I forgive you and I love you, I need like, don't, like, don't do that again. Like here's how to live without that pain. Here's how to live without, without blowing up your life or your marriage or your kids or your career. Like, what, like you need some truth. Like you need someone to come along and say, hey, I love you, but you're being stupid. And John's like, Jesus comes full of both. 100% grace. I love you. You're forgiven. Like I'll never stop forgiving you as many times as you screw it up. Like it's undeserved favor. It's grace. But at the same time, hey, here's the way that you need to live. Here's the path that you need to follow. We need both of those things. We we need to embrace both of those things. We need to live both of those things. All of us kind of have a natural proclivity towards one or another. Some of you are more grace people. Some of you are more truth people. And just be aware of that. Because if you're, if you're like a grace person, if you lean more on the grace side, uh, it's really easy to lean on the grace side and be like, and, and, and make light of sin. Oh, you know, it's okay. It's no big deal. God forgives me. God forgives them. Like, let's just all love each other and never really say, yeah, but sin destroys lives and we need to talk about it and you need to stop doing that. Okay, like there's a point that comes like, okay, there, there's a way to live and you need to get your life together, right? And so if you're, if you're more of a grace person, you probably need a little more dose of truth. Now, if you're a truth person, usually that manifests in, in the idea of you're just kind of mean, you're harsh, uh, maybe judgmental. Just be like, stop, like, they're, like, stop doing that. It's, 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 you, there's a, there's a uh, just kind of inconsiderate, uh, un uncompassionate, just a judging kind of persona. And if that's you, man, you need some more grace. And, and humbly accept some more grace because all of us, if you're a truth person, we are all one mistake away from just blowing up our lives and needing a heck of a lot of grace. Jesus comes full of both. He's grace and truth. Verse 16, he says, Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. Uh, there's just, there is no limit 
to God's grace, to his love, to his, what he pours out on us that we don't deserve. It's grace upon grace upon grace. It's grace upon grace already received. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He talks about the law being the Old Testament law that the Jewish people would follow, that they would live by, the way they would relate to God. And then he kind of talks about you know, grace and truth coming through Jesus. And it, this isn't, like sometimes it's taken this way uh, as like this saying that you know, the law was bad and Jesus, law bad, Jesus good. It's not really that. It, it's the fact that the law was just incomplete because to the Jewish people, the law, it was full of grace and truth too, man. Like the, the law, like the law was God's grace to the nation of Israel. It was this grace to them to know, like to, be, to have a way to atone for sin and to, a way to experience his goodness and his blessing. The law was grace to them. The law was truth to them of how to live their lives. But it was only a partial revealing. It was, it was a shadow, as the author of Hebrews says. It was a shadow of the things to come. That the law was only for a specific people at a specific time and place in history. But now, Grace and truth in its fullness, in its most pure like essence, the essence of grace, the essence of truth, the fullness of both of those things have been revealed and poured out on everyone through the person of Jesus. It's this beautiful idea that grace and truth, it doesn't matter who you are or what your background is, what family you were born to, or you know, where... What, Time in history, what place in history, like, not, like what you believed before, that through Jesus... Like grace is offered to you. Forgiveness, all the things that you don't deserve, it's yours if you want it. And truth is offered to you, the truth that will set you free from things in life. It's come through Jesus. And then he wraps things up by saying this, that no one has ever seen God. And there's, there's, there's our problem, right? There's our issue. There's the thing we talked about at the beginning. No one has ever seen God. I know, great, if we just see him, it would solve all of these problems, right? We'd know what he was like. We'd know that he was real. We'd know how we should live. No one had ever seen God. But John wasn't done. He could have said no one has ever seen God until now. That's basically what he goes on to say. He says, no one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Like hum, throughout human existence, everyone's been kind of trying to figure out what is God like and who is God in different cultures and different times. They had their way of like appeasing the gods and figuring out what God was and they thought like who, what, what God wanted and the Jewish people kind of had a, a partial picture of God but it was still murky, it was still just a shadow and now John's like all of that is gone, all of that is out the window. Now, God has been revealed through Jesus. The word for revealed, um, it's actually, it's the same root word where we get the word exegete or exegesis. And it, it means to, um, it means when you pull apart, like when you pull apart the, uh, the, the meaning of something to show it for what it really is. When you kind of get into the nuance and the details and you look at stuff and you, and you, bring, like you bring it into the light to figure out this is what it is. It, uh, it, it's a word that's usually used when we're talking about like Bible study, like you want to do exegesis. You want to look at the text and, and figure out, don't, I'm not going to try to impose my meaning on it. I want to let it speak for itself. I want to, I want to do the work. I want, to, I want to understand what this really says. And, and John is saying, like, that is what the person of Jesus has done to and for God for us. He's, he's, Jesus has exegeted God. He's shown us who he really is and what he's really like. That if you want to know what God looks like, Man, I wish I knew what God looked like. I wish I knew what to do. I wish he would show up. Then you look at the person of Jesus. 
because God looks like Jesus. He always has. He always will. Like that is, if you want the clearest picture of who is God and does he care about me and what is the whole point of this world and what does he want from my life, you just look to the person of Jesus because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that we have seen God up close and personal and and that's what John is claiming when he said that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He literally means among us. John is writing as someone, where he's talking about him and his friends. Like he has this, this firsthand eyewitness experience with Jesus. He's like, look, no, no, like the word became flesh. Like I, was, I knew him. I was there. I was friends with him. I talked with him. I laughed with him. I ate with him. I cried with him. I spent three years of my life with him. Like this guy was my best friend on the planet. And I'm telling you, he was God in the flesh. He dwelt among us. John is communicating to us what was his firsthand experience and inviting us in. It's, and it's not like an exclusive, like, well, this was my experience and it sucks to be you guys. And this was my experience. And he actually, Jesus invites it to be our experience as well, to let Jesus dwell among us, richly among us in our lives. John's like, the word became flesh. Do you understand this? This changes everything. He's shown up and we can actually know what he is like. And see, that that changes everything in kind of a terrifying way and a good way. You see, it's terrifying to know that, that God has revealed himself through the person of Jesus because if that is true, it really does remove our excuses. A lot of times the excuses we have for not following God or maybe not having faith have a lot to do with that idea of like, if I embrace that, oh man, what are the implications for my life? And so if, if I embrace that the word became flesh and the person of Jesus, that God has revealed himself and done something in history, that changes stuff, man. And that, 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 that's, that's, that's a challenging thing because it messes with my life. <laughs> it gets all up in my business because I'm like, well, Crap, now I gotta like, if I think this is true, I gotta do this stuff. It's a challenging message to accept that, 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 man, God became flesh in the person of Jesus. And while it's challenging, it's, it's also incredibly hopeful because I know who he is and I know what he did and I know what he called me, calls me to. It's it's this hopeful message because if if this is true, if the word became flesh in the person of Jesus, then I know what God is like. I know he's the one who hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. I know he's the one who would call out religious hypocrites. I know he's the one who touched and healed lepers. I know he's the one that opened blind people's eyes and, 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 and made dead people live and lame people walk. I know he's the one who came proclaiming a kingdom of love and justice and goodness and peace and freedom and righteousness. Like I, I know that, that he is the one who came and displayed the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen, laying down his life to pay for my sin and all the junk that I do and all the garbage that I unleash on the world and the greatest act of love. He said, I'll take that for you. And he was laughed at and mocked and executed and tortured because he loves you and he loves me. And we go, what's God like? That's what he's like. Who is God? That's who he is. He's the one who died for us. He's the one who defeated the grave. And it's like, man, if that's who God is, sign me up. Because that sounds awesome. And that is who he is. 
Because that's who he is and because that's what he's done, you know what else we also know when we look to the, the person of Jesus, what he calls us to. He calls us to follow him. He calls us to follow him, to put our faith in him, our trust in him, our hope in him, to lay down everything, to pick up our own cross and follow him. And while that's challenging and that's difficult, in that we actually find life. We find true life in following Jesus because the word became flesh and he dwelt among us because God did not stay distant. He did not stay far away. He did not stay, uh, uh, you know, at a, uh, you're just like, oh, that, that's your problem and that stinks to be you. And, you know, you guys down, you petty little, you know, humans down there on earth, like it's just uh, your problem. You broke it, you fix it. You broke it, you buy it. Like he didn't do that. that he waded into our mess and he got up close and personal so that we could experience life. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He has revealed to us who God is. And that changed everything. And if we let it, it continues to change everything.